This is Something to Gnaw On, a short podcast for the Christian with a short attention span or just short on time, designed to give you something to mentally and spiritually chew on throughout your day, a Bible study in bite-sized form, if you will. We're in a series entitled Handling Conflict, King David Style. In this episode, we'll continue to look at leadership team conflicts, namely Joab and David. In the Vietnam War, a pilot named James Stockdale was shot down and captured. He was a senior ranking officer in what is referred to as the Hanoi Hilton, a North Vietnamese POW camp. For several years, he endured captivity and torture, brutal torture, as opposed to being paraded around as a propaganda pawn and so draw negative attention to the U.S. war effort. He bloodied and bruised his own face to detour the North Vietnamese from using him as a poster child for the media, and it worked. Stockdale also devised a communication code akin to Morse code with which the POWs could communicate with each other from their isolated cells. That communication would save the lives of many soldiers living in solitary confinement. Years after the war, he would retire at the rank of Rear Admiral, and eventually he was asked to run as Vice President with Ross Perot. In an interview with Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great, Stockdale was asked about how he coped. Quote, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted. Not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn this experience into a defining event of my life, which, in retrospect, I would not trade. Then Collins asked about those who didn't make it, and the response was both priceless and befuddling. Quote, That's easy. The optimist. Oh, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again, and they died of a broken heart. End quote. Stockdale summarized the key to survival as follows. Quote, This is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be, end quote. And sometimes confronting is simply enduring. For David, that reality was dealing with Joab for nearly 40 years. Look at David's reaction to Abner's death in 2 Samuel 3.39. And even though I am the anointed king, these two sons of Zariah, Joab and Abishai, are too strong for me to control. So may the Lord repay these evil men for their evil acts. End quote. It may be tempting to throw David under the bus here and think that he shirked his responsibility by letting these guys remain generals in his army. But immediate retribution or correction, is not always proper. Look at what Jesus had to say about the wheat and the weeds, and consider for yourself if the dynamic applies here. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable we often refer to as the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. In the parable, an enemy comes to the field and sows a weed in the wheat field that is similar to wheat but a bit taller, according to vines, and it's poisonous. For years, I thought that this was just an innocuous weed, without giving a thought to this. But the people who heard this story knew that a tear was poisonous. They were talking about getting rid of something that could kill them 
or make them and their families sick. The workers wanted to get the poisonous weed out of the field ASAP, but the master says to wait until harvest, because the roots are intertwined, and uprooting the weeds, or a Joab, will destroy good wheat or good people. The instruction is to wait for a better time, a time when the innocent won't be hurt by the removal, a time when the intertwined roots don't matter anymore. Take some time this week and chew on this passage and its implications in terms of justice and correction, especially within the church. When I worked as a financial advisor years ago, I had the high honor of working with retirees who had served in everything from World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Over the years, several would share stories from their lives, many of which from their time in war. Several of them had shrapnel wounds and were still dealing with the metal shards in their bodies. Every now and then they would say they couldn't meet on a certain date because they were headed to the VA to have some more removed. Other times, I would catch them picking at their arms as the shards would tend to migrate. That's a long time to pack around a foreign object in your body. But why would the medical establishment allow this? Why not go in and get it all out in one fell swoop? As my clients would explain, it's pretty simple, really. It has to do with trauma and risk. In some cases, the body couldn't handle the trauma of so much surgical invasion into the body to get the shrapnel out in one shot. In other cases, the shrapnel was in a risky location in the body, and it was better to leave it alone due to the risk. In this case, you keep an eye on it and only go after it when the risk of leaving the shrapnel exceeds the risk of removing it. For example, when the shrapnel migrates towards an artery, organ, or the spine, rather than the surface of the skin. It would appear that David put up with a lot of shrapnel. He put up with an arrogant general patent type as long as they were heading in the same direction, as long as the nation and David's throne were honored. But at the end of David's life, Joab makes a bad call and throws his allegiance behind Adonijah, who's attempting to take the throne by force and steal it away from his brother Solomon. This act of treason becomes the pretext by which Solomon executes Joab for the murders of Abner and Amasa. You can read up on that in 1 Kings chapter 2. Taking Joab out any sooner could have had disastrous consequences for David and the nation. Keep in mind that when David brought Amasa on board, Amasa was to take Joab's place. And in the previous episode, we saw how that worked out. It can't be easy to live life with a Joab. At the same time, we all have to check our attitudes and make sure that we're not the ones acting like a Joab. Make sure we aren't living with an attitude that our victories in life will offset our deficiencies, or that it's acceptable to ask forgiveness instead of permission, or that it's okay to have uncontrolled anger that thrusts us into places that damage others in addition to ourselves as long as we have a Machiavellian outcome that an overall good is somehow achieved. Or maybe we have an attitude of entitlement like Joab, keeping our position through vice and intimidation and threat. Or maybe we simply consider ourselves better than our superiors, but unable to take their position. So we run our mouths critically behind their backs. We do enough to keep our jobs, but cry about how the boss or the company or the organization is keeping us from our full potential. 
David had plenty of opportunities to act like Joab, but he refused. When you read David's diary in Psalms, you'll find phrases like what you find in Psalm 37 pasted throughout. It's part of the key to dealing with these kind of situations, but it's not easy. He says, quote, Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for Him to act. Do not worry about evil people who prosper, for the wicked will be destroyed, but those who trust in the Lord will possess the land. End quote. So quickly, let's compare David's attitude and Joab's attitude, and then look at the outcomes of their life. David's attitude was, be still, wait patiently, and trust in the Lord. What we know about Joab's attitude was, make haste, take action, protect yourself, fight, control, manipulate, and coerce. Joab's outcome is a death sentence and being written out of history in any positive way, and he's eliminated from the list of mighty men. David's outcome, his throne is established forever, and he possesses the land. If you are a David, it isn't a question of when you will encounter a situation like this, most likely not murder, but a situation where you have a devoted, trusted, and competent leader, friend, or family member who puts their personal agenda ahead of that of the organization or group. And it may not be noticeable while both run concurrently, but when the agenda of the organization and Joab's agenda go different directions, the Joabs of this world are looking out for their agendas first and foremost, and the tension begins. There will be times that removing or relocating such a person would be obvious and easy. And if that's the case, do so without shame or regret. At other times, if you find yourself in a no-win situation where the health and the success of the organization, and dare I say the body of Christ, is at risk, where the shrapnel is at risk of damaging the organization and the body, and equally the surgery provides a risk to the organization or the body, then you'll find yourself in the same place David was when he said, quote, The Lord repay these evil men. And one of the toughest things you will ever do is wait for the Lord to execute judgment. But it will be the only thing you can do. And as you do, I'd ask you this question. How do you keep from losing your mind? There are four characteristics evident in David's life that contribute to his success in weathering the storm with Joab. We'll cover the first two in this episode and hit the last two next week. The first characteristic is the certainty of God's sovereignty. What I love about the Psalms is that it provides what amounts to a diary of David. And yes, I know David didn't write every Psalm, and it isn't always clear which Psalm corresponds to which situation. But as you read through them all, you begin to see a pattern emerge. And God's sovereignty over David's life is one of them, especially in relation to those with whom he has conflict and in times of great trouble. For example, look at an excerpt from Psalm 109, and we'll be looking at this psalm a bit more next week. But for now, I will simply say that this comes out of one of those situations where David is under attack, most likely from those around him. He mentions that they surround him with hateful words and fight against him for no reason. He says that he loves them, and I can't imagine David saying he loves the Philistines. And in verse 21, he not only acknowledges that God is sovereign, he clearly indicates that for David's part, 
he has submitted to his sovereignty. It reads like this, quote, But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. End quote. This usage of the phrase, O God, my Lord, is an interesting phrase. It's pretty simple, but it's interesting nonetheless. Most often in Scripture, the word for Lord is going to be Jehovah, being the simple name for God, just like you are a Justin or a Tommy. A quick shout out to my friends at the Life, Faith, and Everything Else podcast. But in a technical sense, Jehovah is going to speak to the nature of God as self-existent and eternal. But David adds a deeper level of specificity by throwing in the Hebrew word here, Adonai, which is not a name as much as it is a title or a position. More specifically, a master, ruler, or authority. Several versions of the Bible will translate this as sovereign, and the phrase is translated then, sovereign Lord. That is to say that he sits in a position that has both the legal right to reign over something and the power necessary to enforce that right. In this simple phrase, David is saying, O Jehovah, my master, my ruler, my sovereign Lord. It's a clear acknowledgement of God's sovereignty in his life, and David's submission is clear as well. If you want to study this out further, David uses his combo several times in other psalms, but multiple times in Psalm 38 and 68. When dealing with Joab, David makes the comment, May the Lord repay these evil men for their evil acts. He's stepping aside and letting the sovereignty of the Lord take over, because, unfortunately, he recognizes that the situation is beyond his control, beyond his skill, and beyond his ability to correct. The second characteristic the certainty of God's call. Imagine you, as a kid, were out doing your daily chores and Billy Graham showed up. He bypasses all of your family members and ultimately he anoints you and speaks prophetically about you in front of your entire family. And the prophetic word has only been spoken once before and never again by this man. The word is that you would be the ruler of the nation and it comes from the most revered Christian in our time. I think you'd remember that moment, that prophetic word, that promise. It should be indelibly imprinted on your mind, tattooed, if you will, on the back of your eyelids. That's what Samuel's anointing amounted to with David. Fast forward to Second Samuel 7, and as David has taken up the throne in Judah, the prophet Nathan delivers another prophetic word from the Lord. Please read it in its entirety, but it ends with this promise from God to David. Quote, your house and your kingdom will continue for all time, and your throne will be secure forevermore. You'll find that in verse 16. And between the first and the second characteristic, you see the Stockdale paradox at work. David doesn't lose faith in God's sovereignty or anointing on him as king. Additionally, David has a firm grasp on God's personal promise to him and his call on David's life, both of which set a solid foundation for him to weather a Joab-like storm. You see David's confidence in his calling when he first addresses Joab's behavior in 2 Samuel 3.39. We read it earlier in the episode, but look at it again. He asserts confidence, quote, I am the anointed king, end quote. 
He seems to be a bit exasperated with Joab and Abishai and their disregard for his authority, but by no means is his confidence shaken in who he is and what God has anointed him to be. One very tough dynamic every Christian needs to look at here is this. While God's sovereignty is never in question, a legit question we have to ask ourselves is whether or not we are walking in God's plan for our life. I can't camp out on this topic much, but if you want to see what life looks like if you're not in God's will, you might consider Jonah and the difficulties of his life, or maybe even Saul. He had a tough time with obedience. You have to dissect the challenging question, first and foremost, of whether or not you are where God wants you, and are you doing what he called you to do? David was certain of this. And with this certainty comes the simplicity of letting God sort it out. To wrap up this week's episode, chew on this dynamic. David had a firm grip on the fact that if you are walking in God's will, then those who oppose you have got a problem with a sovereign God more than you, even though they're taking it out on you. Let God deal with them. Let God defend you. Next week, we'll wrap up the study on David and Joab by looking at the last two characteristics in David's life that contribute to his success and survival in dealing with the Joabs of life. I'm Nate Vinio, and I hope this has given you something to gnaw on. Until next week, God bless you.